it's an illusion to think that all the money given to me by an employer is rightly mine from the start. I don't think we exist as individual human persons by ourselves at all. And when you build a worldview whose basis is a fear of something, that worldview is going to be warped and twisted in various ways. Hello and welcome to Faith at the Frontiers. This is a short episode in which Carmody and I process what we've learned over the recent episodes and express some of our viewpoints on what some of our guests have said. We focus mainly on the right-wing capitalist guests because we've had more of them than left-wing guests recently, and we take the opportunity to say what we really think about capitalism, which we haven't had the chance to say up until now. I hope you enjoy these reflections. So it's just me and Carmody for this episode, and it's time for us to reflect a little bit on the last episodes that we've recorded and the guests that we listened to, and just talk a little bit about what how they made us think, what what we think of them. It, it's 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 very interesting, and I know Carmody, you and me both quite strongly want to avoid echo chambers, and make sure that this podcast hosts the full mm. spectrum of political opinion. But it feels to me like we've had we've had more mm-hmm, people. Mm-hmm who are on the sort of right wing side of things than than anything else in the last few episodes because we had Andre Andre and Jared as well so we've had yeah. we've given a great deal of space for the capitalist libertarian style of economics <laughs> yeah and that was not it wasn't so much intentional to have such a strong representation of that side of things but I'm actually glad that we did because that mostly those kinds of views are not so represented right. in in the UK I think, and neither of us likes the kind of silo style of the conversation about politics, economics, theology, all that kind of stuff. Well, we only invite guests who we already agree with and who are going to support our own opinions, yeah. Yeah, or where the differences are so minor and trivial that it's ultimately... It's a matter of fine-tuning. You know, that, yeah. that, that they're not decisive. Yeah, exactly, and actually what I think I appreciate about particularly talking to, well, actually to to most of our interlocutors apart from Helen Alford, I think, is that they, they're operating in a different yeah. paradigm. It's not that they have different views about particular issues, it's that the whole paradigm, the kind of foundational assumptions or premises of their thinking about these issues are different to what is more normal in the United Kingdom and probably more normal in the kinds of worlds that, that Barney and I move in. Barney and I work in um, higher education, which tends to be... Very left-wing. More yeah, left-wing. I mean, I, I've not really met anybody in the academic space who has the kinds of views that we've heard from Andre or Dylan Parman. Right. And that's not because, certainly not because I think academics are all more intelligent and far too intelligent to have those kinds of views. It's just because I think academics are more likely to, are just as likely to be sheep in regard to their opinions on things than anybody else. Yeah, although I'm not sure, yeah, I'm not sure if I'd want to characterise it in terms of being a sheep, I think I think it's more it's what happens to a worldview if it never has to defend itself in total. Yeah. In other words, when a worldview becomes unaccustomed to having its very foundations challenged, as opposed to elements within it challenged. So the the academy is a place of very, very lively yes. debate, right? It's a place of where differences of opinion are encouraged, the critical thinking is encouraged, and all these kinds of things. But maybe what isn't so common is to find that one's entire worldview is put in question in such a way that you have to justify it 
or indeed that you have to explain or give an account of why someone else's worldview at that total level doesn't make sense to you. And I think that's what's been very, for me, that's what's been really provocative about, and Barney and I, we, we've spoken about this before, I think, very provocative about people like Dylan Palmer or, or, or Andre, is that if you feel that there's something off about a worldview, such as the one they express, then in that moment, it's completely up to you to be able to explain why. Exactly. And that doesn't happen if you don't come up against that really um, concrete gulf, you know, that genuine otherness of, of a totally different way of thinking about society and yeah. about the human person and about all of the issues we've been talking about. It's just very easy to dismiss something. If you hear somebody in the street saying, oh, they think capitalism is great, it's just very easy to say, oh, yeah, that's wrong and move on. Whereas if, you're, if yeah. you've got somebody in front of you who's articulate and good at, at expressing that view and showing it's in a coherence, it forces you to think hard. Why do I actually think that's wrong? And even what can I learn yeah. from this? You know, because I, I, I don't think Absolutely. it's just about defending one's existing opinion. It's also about saying, well, what can I take on board from this worldview to enrich my 100%. own? And Barney and I had a conversation between the two of us after the last episodes where we were reflecting on our approaches to encountering that kind of difference, which was very stimulating, this exchange that Barney and I had. So we were, we were talking about what kinds of method are most, shall we say, illuminating when one encounters that kind of difference, that should, should one be kind of engaging in a Socratic style, just asking questions in order to bring out the kind of inner workings and possibly ultimately the inconsistencies of another yes. worldview? Or is so one under some kind of... Right. I, I, I tend to, I set myself the challenge of seeing if I can show the inconsistencies or contradictions in a worldview just by asking questions to it, the way Socrates did with all of his interlocutors. Right, um, right. And then I was expressing this, or I was trying to express an alternative view because I'm very drawn to that Socratic style, but I've tried to qualify or, I don't know, expand it in my own life by noticing that maybe sometimes the, the Socratic method is a way of evading having to take a positive or constructive position of my own. Yeah, so in fact, the danger of me doing that is that I, I never... Am challenged to, or I never take the risk of saying what I think, right? And then having that potentially torn down—that's sort of what you're, right? Or, or I might not even know what I think, and I could still ask all of those questions and deconstruct yeah. everybody else's worldview and not have my own constructive alternative, right? And that being so highly trained in the Socratic method, which you know that the best of the humanities do train people in that in that mode of thinking, one could become very highly skilled with that, as it were, with that muscle, but the muscle which one has to use in order to take the risk of creatively thinking through an actual position of one's own isn't exercised because it seems, yeah, riskier and, and, and more vulnerable. Because as soon as one does that, then the opponent can turn the Socratic method against one. And then suddenly one is in the chair, one is in the hot seat having to give answers. I think that a key turning point for me in this was having some doing some work with the BBC and having kind of pre-interviews ahead of appearing on various programmes and being asked questions that <laughs> that I wasn't really prepared to answer. So what oh, do I, I for example, they, what do they, I think they push was wrong you to with... Say what... Right, they, they push you to say, first of all, what you think, and second of all, what are the actual concrete, practical consequences of what you're saying? In other words, to have to take a constructive point of view. So recently, um, a conversation with a BBC producer 
about the crisis in public life, of morality in public life. What did I think about this? Why was it happening? What should we do about it? And I was kind of sharing kind of meta-level reflections. And at some point, the producer, who was extremely nice, by the way, said, well, yes, but okay, so let's, let's, let's say all that's true, but what should we actually do about it? What are we, you know, yeah. like you wake up in the morning, you're in charge of the world. What are you going to do about that? And I noticed that there's a kind of refuge that academics take in not being in that position. And one yes. of the, you know, that they don't have to actually uh, make practical decisions. And I think one of the really cool things about our conversation so far is that several of them have been with practitioners, yeah, that's not right. with academics. Well, I mean, Andre and Jared are not, not academics as well. They're just ordinary people who have thought a lot about stuff and have their own views. But then there's also Robert Netsley you're talking about. There's Robert Netsley and, in his own way, Adil Malik. He's an academic, but he's in a practical discipline, right? He's in an applied science, economics. Interesting. And I, I, I admire the risks that people have to take when they're in those positions. They just have to commit to a particular way of doing things without having been able to answer all the questions. That's real leadership, because you, if people take up your ideas and run with them, you're going to find out whether they work or not, because right. people are actually doing it. Yeah. Right, exactly. So I think, I don't know what you think, Barney, but I think if I had to explain how I would question the kind of worldview in toto of someone like Andre or Dylan Parman, um, and Robert Netsley, I think, was a more complex case. So let's leave him to the side for a minute. Yes. But th these two interlocutors, let's say, Dylan and, and Andre, who represent a kind of strongly free market. Yeah. Sort Lib of libertarian. Libertarian, yeah, yeah uh, model. If I was put on the spot and had to explain what, what I think is wrong about that, the level of premises, I think I would say this. Maybe you can you can say if if you agree or if you'd add something. Or It seems to me that they think that that society is composed of individuals, that individuals are individual human beings are the basic ontological building block, yeah. that that's the kind of primary datum, that's the primary given, right? A datum in Latin means something that's that's given, that the given, yes. the thing that we start from, the absolute basis of it all is the individual. And I, let's call that an ontology of, in, of individualism, right? Which, which, which yes. then cashes out in certain kinds of decisions about what government is for, um, the kind of limits of uh, regulation or the nature of society or the nature of exchange. Yeah, it just becomes about protecting that individual freedom and individual ownership of property. That's right. Yeah. And individual agency is taken to be the sort of highest good that that agency is protected. Yeah. And I I find that now that it's just me and Barney, so to speak, I can I can abandon the Socratic style and just, yeah. just say something that I think. <laughs> this is our chance um, <laughs> to say what we really think. Yeah. Exactly. I find that completely insupportable, both descriptively and normatively. That seems to me totally and utterly wrong. Uh, but that's still quite easy of you to say. Can, can you say why it's insupportable or can you give examples or illustrate why it's insupportable? Yeah, I think I might have said this before, but never mind. We don't have identities and personalities and then with those given things enter into relationships. We enter into relationships and through these we develop identities and personalities. They're not private so we are, or personal We are positions. who we are in and through other people, not just as individuals. I'm, I'm, I think not at all as individuals. Yeah. And I, I, I'm aware that there's such a thing as overstating this. But, and maybe this is a kind of, I'm sort of um, overstressing this precisely as an opposition to what I think is a dominant way of thinking. But let's leave the nuance aside for a minute. I don't 
think we exist as individual human persons by ourselves at all. We, it yeah. seems to me that ourselves are constructed in an ongoing series of relationships, both with other people and, of course, with the material world. Over time, we become persons over time by entering into relationships and community. And to, the, the best short, short summary of this, I think, is John Paul II's famous um, maxim, there's no such thing as a person alone. Yeah. So in other words, I think becoming, we do, of course, become individuals. There's, I'm different from you, and I have distinctive things about me that are specific to me. But I think that that is an outcome of relational processes. It's not the primary, it's not the given. It's that comes out at the we, end rather than starting at the beginning. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's, and I think that's descriptively just how things are. I think that's how human beings are. So yeah, I could say more yeah. about that, but maybe that's a kind of first go. Yeah, okay. Um, I, I note, by the way, that Dylan Parman tried to bring John Paul II in on his own side by saying yeah. that Dylan called himself a personalist and said that John Paul II was also a personalist. So it's interesting that you, you're quoting John Paul II as militating mm. against Dylan's view. Mm. So I, I've been thinking a little bit about... I, I find it hugely impressive how Andre's sort of pure capitalist system, how, how coherent it is as a worldview how sort of how sort of watertight it is in terms of he's willing to face implications of what he's saying to quite some extreme level but i think at the end of the day what i hear from capitalists again and again and again is this idea that the the government is taking my money from me in in the form of tax illegitimately my money belongs to me and then the government takes it by force uh, and that's what the whole the whole capitalist system depends on that idea. What I earn is mine first and foremost, and then some of it is taken away from me by force by the government without my permission or consent, and that violates my individual freedom. And that's why we should have as little tax as possible, or possibly no tax. Therefore, my property rights and my freedom are being violated. But it seems to me that that presupposes a whole lot of stuff about the way I earn money and how I go about buying and selling things as if the government wasn't there to enable that in the first place. Precisely, precisely. So it seems to me, it's like saying, okay, the money I earn is given to me by somebody else in a process of exchange, but that process of exchange itself is only possible because there is a government who guarantees whatever agreement was made, prosecutes anyone who violates that agreement, and even maybe guarantees the value of the money that's used to make Absolutely. the exchange. Exactly. So the exchange doesn't place, take place outside of a sort of governmental space. It depends on the government in the first place. And therefore, it's an illusion to think that all the money given to me by an employer is rightly mine from the start. Precisely. Precisely. It's actually, oh, yeah. the government. when the government taxes, the government is really taking what's already theirs by right, by virtue of the fact that they have been working to put structures in place to enable me to earn that money. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's it's as though, and this is the sort of political consequence of this ontological individualism that I was speaking yes. about. If you have an ontological individualism, then you have the impression that exchanges are undertaken in a perfect vacuum. Yeah. You know, that everything is initiated from some pristine space of pure freedom inside myself, which bracketing out supposedly, all of the social and political right, context the kind in of which massive, a financial exchange happens. Right. There's mm. just, just the complexity of social and political and economic infrastructure that is necessary for anyone to undertake exchanges like that. I, I've, I, 
the more I read of sort of contemporary, what I think of as, as, as the best in contemporary economics, the more it seems that economists are increasingly stressing that this abstraction of economic exchange from political, social, and indeed, I might add, ecological setting yes. causes so many problems because it's not true, because economic exchanges don't happen in a vacuum. They don't. Have, it's not that me and Barney have a kind of totally and utterly closed moment in which we freely enter into a contract and exchange whatever it is that we exchange. Every single moment of that is structured and supported and enabled by multiple structures at multiple levels and indeed systems, such as, for yeah. example, the fact that someone is paying for us to be able to drive on the road outside our houses because otherwise we couldn't ever even meet each other. Uh, Andre would still say that we pay for the roads through our taxes, right? Well, yes, but it has to be coordinated. There has to be an agency that combines mm. and coordinates and makes decisions which we completely delegate about which pothole should be filled when and by whom and, yeah, yeah. you know, how much money. I mean, it's just kind of, it's it's ridiculous to consider that that agency yeah. which creates those structures is not the actual medium in which we conduct our exchanges. It's true. I, I should say, by the way, that when, when you talk to capitalists at, at length, you find out that what undergirds some of this protection of individual freedom is a very strong fear of totalitarianism, communism, yeah. uh, 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 of, of some of the evils that I think we would all agree are genuine evils that, that came about because the government had too much power and too much control and squashed other people's freedom. So I think that's true. I agree with you. And it's very important to bear in mind that context. It's, it's important to ask, as I think I did ask Andre, you know, what is it that you're afraid of? What's yeah, the so kind he, of fear he didn't, that's driving he didn't these tell you, I, Well, you didn't ask him what he was afraid of. You asked him what... What, why he was interested in the question. And, and I yeah. think if you, he will admit in the end that he's afraid of, or he wouldn't say it that way, he said there's a genuine threat that communism will take over America. There's no reason why it shouldn't. It's already started and we need to combat it by not letting the government get any more power or money than they already have. Yes. I don't think I'm overstating how Andre would put that. No, I, I, I absolutely hear you. And of course, I'm not sure if Robert Netsley actually said this in our podcast, but if you look at his website, you can see that he has identified ESG, environmental and social governance, sort of criteria for it's companies. It's been overtaken as by a Marxist being agenda. Being weaponized by Marx, a Marxist agenda. So yes, yeah. there are, of course, lots of people that think that that is a real threat. But Well, I mean, I just think we think about it as the pendulum swinging from one end to the other. I'm very happy to agree that communism didn't work and wasn't a good thing. The trouble is that when you act out of fear, even as an individual, you're not normally making the, the wisest of choices. And mm. when you build a worldview whose basis is a, a fear of something, that worldview is going to be warped and twisted in various ways because it, it's not going to be a worldview that fully understands the world with mm. wisdom. And I think if you build a worldview out of fear of communism, that worldview is going to look a great deal like capitalism but it's just swinging the pendulum to the other end of the spectrum. And I, this is what I, I loved so much about Helen Olford's... To, I, to be honest, I think she was the favourite person of mine that we've had to talk mm. so far. She was just mm. so balanced mm. because she didn't just reject capitalism out of hand. She didn't just throw it away as a bunch of rubbish. She said... It was very nuanced, right? Yeah, she said, look, we had a lot of problems because of Marxism and communism. We had a lot of violation of of, of people's freedom and we had a lot of, you know massacres and various terrible things that happened 
But the problems that we're facing now, this is what she said, are problems that come from the other side. Mm. They're problems that come from capitalism. They're problems of loneliness. Mm. And they're problems of extreme poverty. Mm. And they're problems of isolation. And people not knowing the purpose of their lives and not having any common goals. They're not being any third social space between the individual and the government. Yeah. Those are all problems that emerge from the capitalist worldview. We've had the problems that emerge from the communist worldview at the far left, and now we have the problems that emerge from the capitalist worldview at the far right. Mm. Yeah, and if I might say so in a completely nonpartisan way, I think that's one of the massive strengths of Catholic social teaching, is that it kind of transcends the left-right yes, dichotomy. Yes, it does. It, 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 it can't be fitted into an agenda of, on either the left or the right. And it, it really I, can't. I have to say it did that before there was any left or right polarization yes. that we see in our society. I, yeah. I, I read Rerum Navarum many years ago, and I was astonished again and again by how it steered away from communism and Marxism. And this was before communism even existed. Mm. And it also steered away from right-wing capitalism. Mm. It just mm. somehow navigated... I won't even call it a middle space because it seemed to sort of transcend that yeah, divide. Yeah, it's just on a different, in. it's in a different kind of dimension, isn't it? Yeah. I completely agree. And that's been one of the many reasons why through my whole sort of academic life and indeed personal life, I I never cease to be amazed by the kind of scope and fertility of, of Catholic social teaching. The best word I, uh, that, that, that always comes to mind to describe it is that it's so deeply sane. It seems like a, a deep sanity is expressed. Yes, in Catholic social teaching. And I'm really not saying that because of any particular loyalty to the church. It's just on its own merits. Yes, It is such a balanced way of considering the kinds of problems that we've been talking about. And Helen Alford really expressed that sense of balance, right? That it was so non-polemical. She was so non-polemical. She was so not kind of staking a territorial claim. She was just trying to think through the questions. She had what my wife likes to call a souveraineté, which is a sort of academic term to mean a mastery of the discourse to the extent where you know where to place all of the different contending yeah. voices. She's, yeah. She stand, stood above them in a very humble way. She didn't seem arrogant at all, but yeah. she seemed to know the rightful place of individualism and the rightful place of socialism and the rightful place of ownership and all of those kinds of things. Mm, mm, mm. And she even pointed towards uh, things that need to be, you know, it wasn't as if she thought she had all the answers either. Absolutely. It's like, right, we need to bring the concept of relationality into economics, and that's how we will make progress. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and, and in a way which is now, of course, ve- is very characteristic of the current papacy, but does go back much further, I think, in the Catholic social tradition. She called very insistently for interdisciplinarity and for dialogue. You know, that there needs to be a conversation among disciplines and among actors, a kind of, you know, what, what we might call an intramural conversation about yes. these issues that isn't mainly polemical, that is mainly constructive and collaborative, um, seeking to find common solutions. That, by the way, brings in this uh, question of interdisciplinarity that Dylan Parman also talked about uh, mm. w- with his attempt to sort of quite strongly separate economics from theology. Yeah, He, he really wanted to say economics is one thing and e- economists can do economics and theologians shouldn't try to do economics yeah. and economists sh- shouldn't try to do theology. But I, I remember I was trying very hard using the Socratic method to, to show how you can't actually separate those two. And I don't think I got there because, um, I don't know, he, he just talked too much or something. <laughs> mm, 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 but I asked, mm. him, I asked him why he thought that 
efficiency was good from a purely yes. economic standpoint. Yes. Because I pointed to him that actually calling efficiency good means that there's a value there. Yeah. That economics Rather isn't than just actually sort of... serving efficiency as a value that serves other values. And the question exactly. is, what other values is it serving? Yeah, but even having any value, having any concept of what is good yeah. already brings it into the ethical space, which yes. which further brings it into the theological space. Completely. And so to my mind, I was trying to show him that this separation he had between theology and economics didn't really work, that economics yeah. ultimately depended on some notion of what is good that yes. ultimately comes from your theological commitments. Spot on. Absolutely spot yeah. on. And I think this is a this is a real... I mean, I'm, I'm reading the history of economics at the moment in various different um, forms. And economics was invented as a science at a very particular moment when there was a strong need, there was a perceived strong need to put it on a purely quantitative empirical footing and to turn it into a mathematical, a mathematical yes. discipline. That was 150 years ago or, or a bit more. And it seems that at least at the leading edge of the discipline now of economics, there's a slowly dawning realisation that that just isn't sustainable, that economics cannot be abstracted from questions about the good about social value and we've talked about some of the texts some of these texts before but i'd recommend to anyone mark carney's book values in which he basically says we can't have a notion of economic value you know often measure with money economic value we cannot divorce that from our wider sense of what's good that that society roughly speaking agrees on and seeks and that's of course and barney and i probably agree with this agree about this always a theological question. It always touches on some sense yes. of what's ultimate. Even if a person never couches that in religious or uh, religious language or language about God, it's always theological in the sense that it's never just empirical. It, it's theological in the sense that it involves one one's beliefs about what is ultimately meaningful and important, whether those yep. beliefs happen to be religious or not. Yeah, yep. exactly. Something I thought very interesting, and this is an idea worth considering, I think, that very interesting that Robert Netsley said... He said a couple of interesting things, sort of specific things that, that maybe are worth mentioning. Number one is that he wanted very clearly to separate consumer ethics from investor ethics. I thought that was quite oh, an interesting yes. position. You know, that it's not, it's quite different to invest in Amazon than it is to buy from Amazon. And I yeah, wondered... I found that really odd, actually. Very, very odd. I'm not sure how sustainable I find that, but it was it was a striking claim. It's It, uh, it occurred to me that a, a sort of capitalist, a broadly free market capitalist position of the sort that he was occupying... Uh, probably needs to be able to say that, but I don't think it can be sustained. But anyway, that's just one thing I wanted to flag that I've been pondering about since. The other thing that he said, which we we maybe could explore more, is with a very surprising ease and facility, he just accepted that Christianity isn't naturally aligned with any one economic system. You would think from his kind of profile and his activity and his professional work that he would have been a free market, a free marketeer in a kind of ideological, this is how God wants us to live kind of way. And actually, yeah. he didn't say that. He actually was amazingly open in the way that he construed the different ways that Christianity might work out economically, that Christianity might actually be compatible with many. I'm not sure that's entirely consistent. With, because with at the what? same time, when, he, when, he, when, we, when I pushed him to say what was anti-biblical about Marxism... Because, you know, that's what he was saying. Why they pulled mm. out of ESG was because it was Marxist mm. and therefore unbiblical. And I said, well, what's unbiblical about Marxism? He couldn't quote the Bible. And he was good at quoting the Bible all the rest of the time. Yeah. He, he, quoted, he had a Bible verse for almost everything else he said. But mm. when I said, why is Marxism unbiblical? He couldn't quote the Bible. And he talked about removal of religious liberties, mm. which again brings back in this idea of freedom, mm. that actually the individual should be free 
Mm. And I'm not saying he's wrong, he might be right, but I'm just saying that he was actually tying the Bible to certain notions of freedom and individualism that did actually align more with his mm. capitalist views than I think mm. he even realised. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going, is that he the, the view he expressed about Christianity's relationship with, with economic activity seemed difficult to mm. square with, with his other claims. Yeah. But I think I think it's a very important it's a very important question to consider. And it's one of the questions that's kind of been in the background of, of so many of our conversations. Does Christianity count in or out certain forms of economic arrangement? Yeah. Does, does, does it, it propose its own economic system? Yeah. Right. Or put negatively, does it totally rule out some kinds of economic system? It's it's a it's a different it's it's different but an, an analogy with some of the conversation about the relationship between Christianity and science. Does Christianity have yes. any internal comments to make about the conclusions or methods of the natural sciences? Or is it just, does it just kind of sit alongside them and whatever the sciences do, they do, and maybe Christianity has something to say about it, or maybe it doesn't, yeah. but that they're external <clears throat> to one another? It's about whether the disciplines are separate or not. And, exactly. and it's always, whenever somebody says, oh, the disciplines are separate, I wonder what the nature of that statement is what discipline does that statement belong to that says that the disciplines are all separate yes it's, it's uh, exactly you, barney it's a meta level statement a meta doesn't it you can't say that yeah. statement from within any one discipline exactly and this is also true of the relationship between philosophy and theology which i did a lot yeah. of work on in my doctorate is that anybody who's saying so is already doing both philosophy and theology by yeah. by their choice just of by speaking their position that on that question yeah yeah, yeah. Exactly. And I think that's probably what, well, I don't know if you agree, Barney, but that's probably what I would want to call a necessarily theological space. In order to yeah. say something about everything, you already enter into a theological space because you're assuming a point of view from outside, from outside of all there is. That's, and oh, that's that a kind of interesting point. You know, yeah. when, you, when you stand back and make a claim about the whole, about everything... That is, if you like, a God's eye view. Whether or not you believe in God, that's not the point. The point is that yeah. it's a theological level. Trying to comment yeah. on the whole of reality is a theological thing to do. And the same goes for knowledge, trying to comment on the whole of knowledge or the whole of the way that we that we organise our understanding of the world. Yeah, I'm afraid we don't have much more time. No, but that was a that was a very um, that was a very rich. Overview yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's good to actually just sort of air some of some of what I feel we've learned from having all of these interviews yeah uh, and gather together some of these insights and put these because put these different people we've interviewed in conversation with each other to a certain degree as well yes exactly th through exactly. our own reflections and interpretations yeah so, and also maybe just between the two of us really confronting the limits of our ability to articulate why we think what we think Yes, which is, it's as you say, I, I need to come out of the shell a little bit more and, and put, pin my cards to the table. No, what's the expression? <laughs> Your colours to the mast. <laughs> pin my colours to the mast. Put my cards yeah. on the table. That's the one. And, and yeah. say what I actually think as well, instead of just asking other people what they think. Because I do actually think stuff. I have a lot of things that yes. I think. And I welcome the invitation to say what I think. I just am very British and polite and like to let other people talk yes. a lot of the time. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> All right. It's been a pleasure, Comedy. Look forward to the Likewise. next time. Yeah, till soon. All right. Thank you for listening to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast produced in collaboration with The Tablet. 
If you liked this episode, then do subscribe to hear more like it in the future. For now, goodbye.